Our lesson today is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse, verses 1 through 10, a story that I know already you've heard uh, a little bit about uh, in our service, but hear the word of God. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, here I am. And ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the, Lord was, that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, where we pray this in his name. Amen. In J.R.R. Tolkien's masterful mythological trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, he tells the tale about the young hobbit Frodo Baggins who has been given the burden of bearing the one ring of power. And it's a ring that has the kind of power that can destroy the world. In fact, its presence in the world is already casting a shadow of darkness and terror. The only way for the world to escape this dark power is for the ring to be taken back to the volcano from which it had been forged and then cast into the fire and destroyed. Frodo senses that this is what his mission, his calling must be. Somehow the ring has come to him and somehow he must ensure its destruction. But the mission is a dangerous one. He must tread fearful paths through enemy territory and overwhelming temptation and face into his own weakness and vulnerability. Seeing the road ahead of him, he laments to Gandalf the wise and asks, why must the burden of the ring come to me? I wish it need not have happened in my time. To which Gandalf replies, so do I and so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given us. I think it can be safely said that just about every generation and just about every part of the world has, grow, has grown concerned over the time in which they are living. 
When I was young, it was the Vietnam War and the drugs and the pollution and the fight for civil rights. When my parents were young, it was the Depression and World War II. For my grandparents, it was the Depression and World War I. Generations before, it was marching off to the Civil War. No one really escapes the crises of history. Even today, we're worried about social and political division and the fate of the earth, the Middle East, the resilience of our Constitution. No one gets to choose the times in which we live. But according to the sage, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Our text this morning tells of a time in Israel's history when all was not right with the world. The chief priest of Israel at the time was Eli, but the house of Eli was not pleasing to God and was on the verge of collapse. The writer tells us that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. The foundations of Israel's religious life were teetering and there appeared to be a vacuum of leadership. Enter the young man Samuel. Samuel, whose mother had offered him to the service of the temple, was a young man who did not necessarily understand what his mission in life might be. In fact, the writer tells us that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. He was likely so young that the greater question of what would be needed of him at this important moment of history is a question that likely would not have even dawned on him. At Samuel's age, I was more concerned about Michigan football, the Detroit Lions, Cardinal baseball, and which girls liked me or didn't like me. Having found the only girl that did like me, I'm now just concerned about Michigan football, the Detroit Lions, and Cardinal baseball. <laughs> so when Samuel hears his name called in the middle of the night, he could not have imagined that it came from anywhere except the person who was in the door in the room next door to him, the high priest himself. Samuel just cannot imagine that the name called in the middle of the night was coming from anywhere else, and certainly not God. Samuel, Samuel is what he hears, but, but how could it be that God was actually trying to get his attention? How could it be that it was God calling him, talking to him? How could it be that God had a mission in mind for him to become the future judge of Israel? Don't you wonder if Samuel could be like most of us, born with this, with this inherent doubt that God would have anything important or personal to say to us? Samuel, Samuel is what Samuel hears. God addresses Samuel in the most personal of ways by calling him by name. Nothing more personal than that. When Moses passes by the burning bush, it's not the burning bush that calls him, it's the voice of God. And the voice of God calls Moses by name. Moses, Moses which leaves no question as to who's calling. When Jesus walks by those boats at the Sea of Galilee and sees all those fishermen alongside the shore, Jesus doesn't call out to the general crowd. No, he starts naming names. Andrew, Simon, James, John, come follow me. Saul, Saul is what the Pharisaical fanatic hears on the Damascus Road. Are you talking to me? God knows our name and sometimes calls us by name. When Mary Magdalene finds herself stumbling through the graveyard where they had buried Jesus, wondering why the tomb was empty, she bumps into a stranger but can't make out who it is until the stranger does what? He calls her by name. Mary, Mary, he says. 
And all he, that's all he needs to say because it's her name. And who knows her by name? All the rabbi knows her by name. And that's when she sees and believes something she hadn't been able to see and believe before. Mary, Jesus says. Andrew, Jesus says. Simon, Jesus says. James, Jesus says. John, Jesus says. Samuel, Jesus says. Moses, Jesus says. He knows us by name. The one who knit us together in our mother's wombs has not lost sight of his knitting. He knows us by name. He's that personally involved with you and me. Over and over again, the Bible tells us these stories of how God keeps trying to get our attention. Sometimes he speaks our names. Sometimes he signals to us in ways that he hopes will grab our attention. And God best grabs our attention when we open our minds to the possibility that God cares so personally about us, that God loves us so deeply, that God is interested then in speaking with us. God loves each of us so personally, so deeply, that God speaks to us every moment of every day. Can you imagine that? God is seeking out the ways to speak to us in a language we might understand, in words or name or signs that will grab our attention. But it helps for us first to listen, to look, to pay attention. It helps us to be on the lookout that God might be addressing us in a way we may not even expect. Isak Dennison is most known for her memoir, Out of Africa, made into an Academy Award-winning movie. But prior to her own story, she wrote a collection of short stories called Seven Gothic Tales. And one of the stories contains a story within it about an American or uh, Armenian organ grinder and his monkey. The setting is in Paris, and the Armenian organ grinder and his monkey would make their way up and down the Parisian streets, grinding their org his organ, while the monkey would make his way through the crowd, collecting tips from people. The monkey, upon the command of the Armenian, would even perform tricks for the people to give more tips. Eventually, though, and sadly, the Armenian died, and before long, the monkey came into the possession of a lovely French family who cared for the monkey and fed him well, but the monkey began to languish because he didn't know what to do anymore, and he didn't know what to do because those who were calling him were calling him in a language he could not understand. He only knew the voice and language of the Armenian. It may be an indisputable fact that the meaning of our lives, the chances of us thriving, have everything to do with connecting the voice that speaks our language, that knows our name, with the one who knit us together in our mother's wombs. When I was in college and thinking that I was bound for law school, by God's grace, I was brought into a conversation with one of my political heroes, a United States senator named Mark Hatfield. I didn't enter the conversation with any expectation that, God, that the God who knew my name was preparing in that moment to address me. But address me he did when this U.S. senator, a godly man, asked me what I was doing with the rest of my life. And I told him about my plans to go to law school. And by God's grace, I mentioned this little voice in the back of my head that was saying, serve the church. And then God spoke to me through the words of this United States Senator and in a language I could understand that that little voice, he said, that maybe that little voice in the back of my head might be the voice of God calling my name. Steve, Steve. 
and it was a turning point in my life. The church staff is reading a book by Anne Lamott called Traveling Mercies, in which she tells the story of her coming to faith, and the story is a hard one. It's filled with desperate attempts on her part to be loved and needed, drugs, alcohol, bad relationships, and abortion, and the premature death of her father, as well as her best friend. And she recalls being at her wit's end, sick and curled up in bed, and then she recounts the following. After a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner, and I just assumed it was my deceased father, whose presence I had felt over the years when I was frightened and alone. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure that no one was there, and of course there wasn't. But after a while, in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus. I felt him as surely as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this. I felt him just sitting there on his haunches in the corner of my sleeping loft, watching me with patience and love, and I squinched my eyes shut, but that didn't help because that's not what I was seeing him with. Finally, I fell asleep, and in the morning, he was gone. But then, Everywhere I went, I had the feeling that a little cat was following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, and then it stays forever. (laughs) So I tried to keep one step ahead of it, slamming my houseboat door when I entered or left. And one week later, when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs. And this time, I stayed for the sermon, which I just thought was ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and so raw and so pure that I could not escape. It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. And I felt like their voices or something were rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened up to that feeling, and it washed over me. And I began to cry, and I left before the benediction, and I raced home, and I felt that little cat running along at my heels. And I walked down past dozens of potted flowers under a sky as blue as one of God's own dreams, and I opened the door to my houseboat, and I stood there a minute, and then I hung my head, and I said, expletive, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right. You can come in. Miss Lamott adds, this was the beautiful moment of my conversion. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And the God who knows our name and sometimes calls us by name, the God who speaks through senators and follows us like a cat, the God who knows the language only we can understand and sings the song that rocks us in his bosom, the God who appears at every time and place, at every age and moment, and at times we least expect or desire, this God who knitted us and knits us still is here right now to claim us, to call us, to send us. Samuel, Samuel, cried the voice. And Samuel said, 
speak, Lord, for your servant is listening.